Thank you. Thank you. Morning, everybody. I am really not sure that we need somebody else to preach to us this morning, <laughs> do we? <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you, Lynn. God bless you. Um, great. As Joe said, we're coming to the end of our series on emotionally healthy spirituality. Uh, today is the last talk in this series. We're going to start something brand new next week. In fact, Paul is going to start a brand new series next week on developing a culture of generosity. However, that's for next week. Um, you will know that we've been looking at this for a number of weeks. Um, I think I count this as talk number 10. So, uh, well done for sticking with it. Um, the key distinguishing feature of this book that we've been looking at in this series is how the author, Pete Scazzaro, who's a pastor in New York, has linked the idea um, around the ideas around emotional health and what it is to grow in emotional health and the way we relate with one another and contemplative spirituality, which is the ideas, pretty ancient ideas to be honest, of how it is that we can relate to God. And I know that we, you know, I don't know what your sort of experience of contemplative spirituality has been before this. Um, you know, I sort of sometimes think, gosh, this is the vineyard. We're only 40 years old. What do we know about any of that sort of stuff? Um, you know, that's all the desert fathers and lots of being quiet and walking around like a monk. And is it really relevant for today? I've, I've found it to be really fascinating and very relevant. In fact, as a pastor, over a number of years, I've found, both Joe and I have found ourselves regularly spending time with people who whilst they've been following Jesus for a long time, haven't always found relationships easy and particularly haven't found it easy when they've been facing challenging and difficult times in their life. I mean, I've met people, talked with people and prayed with people over the years who on the outside you would say they are solid Christians. You know, they've been going to church a long time. They pray regularly. But actually when faced with a difficult time, you realize that, you know, they're actually going to pieces inside not functioning well, and not being able to relate to God. We're talking about people who, you know, you might know the Bible, for years, you know, know it really well, have, having prayed and had quiet times for years, but just not really equipped with the spiritual resources to dig into our relationship with God. Because that is the thing that will sustain us through the hard times. I spoke to a guy last week who's been coming a little while to this church. Um, he said to me, um, I've been moving further and further forward. And he said to me, you've been challenging me. I said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> he said, no, no, that's fine. <laughs> I said, tell me what, what the challenging has been about. He said, they've been challenging me to be honest about how I feel and to not be afraid to express my emotions rather than keeping them bottled up. And, you know, we know particularly for us blokes that that's quite a challenge, isn't it, sometimes? You know? And we've, we've explored this in the series. We've, we've, we've realized that many of us, struggle with this, the, the ability to honestly express what we feel. Some of us have realized that, you know, we've inherited patterns of behavior from our family of origin that are just not healthy. And they're just, they're, they're affecting the way we do life and the way we relate to people. It's fair to say that as we've worked through this series, many of us have resonated with aspects of this material and been challenged to grow in our own emotional and spiritual life. And the truth is, that the more we develop a regular, deep, personal connection with God, the more it will help build emotional resilience and ultimately sustain us through the inevitable tough times that are going to come in our lives. 
We're, gonna, we're all going to face stuff one time or another. That's life. As a pastor, it's, our, it's my responsibility to help us encourage, help and encourage us to build that connection. That's why Joe jumped up and said, you know that moment where we just stopped and looked at God? It's those moments that we need to do, not just in church on Sunday. It's, very, it's lovely when we do it here, but actually for ourselves at home every day, several times a day, just to take a moment, just to be quiet and engage with God and be present with him. Just to realize, as Linda was sharing with us, that he loves us and that we are being loved here and now. And just stopping to reflect on that and think, that's kind of what all of this stuff is all about. I've also had the privilege of walking with some people through some very difficult times. People who have made choices on their journey to every day look to Jesus and trust him with their lives, even though it doesn't feel like much is going on. And by the way, I know that some of you are in the middle of that right now. You know, we, we know your stories, some of you, and we, we see the reality. And, you know, you aren't on your own. You aren't on your own. But it's really encouraging to see when people get to a stage in their faith where they're able just to come before God and bring their stuff to God, you know, and not just rely on coming to church. So, you know, that's, it's really important to come to church. We always say this. If you're struggling and you come to church on Sunday, and you come to small group, then there are always two opportunities every week to get prayed for. You can get prayed for every week twice, three times if you come on a Sunday night as well. Okay? And so that's great, but that's not going to be enough to sustain us and our faith. You know, many of us have experienced really significant transformation because we've made choices when it counted. And Scazzaro, who wrote this book, obviously is a pastor and has dealt with people um, in New York City, he's based, and recognize that that's a, it's a hard thing to do, to be able to build that intentional relationship, particularly within our pressurized 21st century cultural life. You know, he, he understand and understood that in our culture, it can be really easy to get distracted away from time with God. There's so many things vying for our attention. Media, celebrity, consumerism, lifestyle, work, money. Social media feels to me sometimes like everything in my culture is screaming, look at me, look at me, and don't look at God. And yet, you know, we know that the thing that will help sustain us long term is looking at God. You know, we know that if we're not careful, we can find ourselves living out what looks like a really strong and vibrant faith. But actually we're just going through the motions and what we're doing is really feeding off the faith of others and the energy of others, you know, and drawing. And there's, there's a danger there that we don't actually invest in our own interior life. And so Scazzaro realized that, and he brought together this whole idea of emotional health, which is something he's been writing about for 10, 15 years. But more recently, bringing together this with the contemplative spirituality and saying, actually, there is such power in these ancient practices. The reason that they're still here is because they go back for centuries, because they've been proven as ways that people can connect with God. They're not the only ways to connect with God. You know, doing a rule of life or doing a daily office or doing a Sabbath, it's not the only way to connect with God, but they're just really tried and tested, proven ways of connecting with God that are brilliant at helping people build simple, regular, intentional habits into our lives. And if we can do that, it'll provide a firm foundation for our discipleship. And so last week, Joe introduced us to the idea of the rule of life. Um, We've been looking at these books, I'll come back to them later. Uh, The rule of life. Now, the rule of life is something that was introduced and written by a very influential 
monk in the 6th century called St. Benedict. He started a community, a Benedictine community, which has spread and grown all around the world and still exists to this day. Um, there's a Benedictine community not that far from here, up at Alton Abbey. Um, there's another one on the Isle of Wight that I'm aware of. Um, you can see in this slide that he is holding this book called Regular, regular meaning ruler. Okay, And the, the thing that Benedict is really known for is he said to all his monks, look, if we're going to live our lives in a way that's going to get us closer to God and more mature in our faith, then there's, there's going to be a rule that we're going to live out. And the rule of St. Benedict, let me read this quote to you. The rule of St. Benedict is not only the basic guide for living for monks of various orders. Actually, now it's the inspiration for a whole load of other what we call neo-monastic movements, new monastic movements, which are mainly in cities around the world. It establishes a way of life rooted in the gospel, grounded in the scriptures, in the principles of charity, humility, stability and faithfulness. So not only are there monks living in abbeys and communities living this stuff out day by day, week by week, year by year, um, actually there's a whole bunch of people, particularly in larger cities, who are living intentional, what they call new monastic communities, living with a similar kind of rule of life. If you want to look that up anymore, have a look at a guy called Shane Claiborne and his book, The Simple... He, he's, I can't remember what his book is called, but the... the um, community that he founded is called the simple way and they're based in philadelphia and they live among the poor and they try and make a difference and they live out in a kind of neo-monastic way based on benedict's rule of life or something similar there's another quote here the rule sets forth an outline for christian discipleship drawn from the heart of jesus ministry the call to follow christ to be transformed by the work of the holy spirit and to become living witnesses to the grace of god in the world now, as Joe touched on last week when she introduced this idea, you know, we can hear, oh, rule, that just means a bunch of rules I've got to follow. But that's not the idea. Um, the word rule comes from the Latin word regular, which is the, the, the kind of root word for words that we use, such as regular or ruler. It means straight. The Greek word means trellis, okay, as in the sort of trellis, the sort of framework that you would build in order to allow your plants to grow. How many people are into gardening and have got something like a trellis or a framework in their garden? My neighbour has because he puts his sweet peas out about now every year. And I saw it the other day and he's got his little trellis up. And the, the, you put them there so that the plants have something to grow up. The trellis isn't the thing. The growth is the thing. But it wouldn't grow straight and properly in the way you want it to unless you put this framework up around it. And that's what the rule of life is. And in the last chapter of this book, Scazzaro encourages us to develop our own rule of life. Um, here's the little thing that Joe was talking about last week. Now, we gave out a sheet last week, and um, if you weren't here, you may want... This is just the same as the one we gave out last week. So if you want one, Joe's got some, and just stick your hand in the air, and we'll just give them out. If you weren't here, you might want to grab one of these, or if you've inadvertently lost it, you can also download it from the website... Um, but this is just a sheet called My Rule of Life. And Joe talked through all of this last week, so I'm not going to sort of go over it again. But this is basically some of the teaching and some of the suggestions that Scazzaro puts in the chapter, where he suggests thinking through these four areas and saying, look, what do you want to do in the area of prayer? You know, what do you want to do in the area of rest? What about work and activity? And what about relationships. And the idea isn't that we're going to sit here and tell you everything you should do. 
This is something for each of us to take and reflect on and pray about ourselves. And I do suggest that you don't try and do a whole bunch of new things in every single area, because that's going to be difficult. But as you reflect, I would suggest something along the lines of, well, what do I do already? What already have I built into my life? What's a pattern that I already have in my life that's working? And then, is there something in here that could be a new thing that would really help me? So one thing that Joe and I have been doing over the last year or two is trying very hard to have a Sabbath, to make time on our day off rest time, where we don't think about work, we don't talk about uh, work, we don't look at our emails, we don't respond to stuff. And we're okay at it. We're getting better at it. Okay? We're pretty good at it when we... What's that? You're okay at it and I'm not. Okay, that's not quite true. We're getting better at it anyway. Um, so that would be one of the things that I would put down on my rule of life. It's something we're going to keep trying really intensely. What is it that we do that helps to build that, that helps to facilitate that? But whatever it is for you, I would suggest that you take this and have a, a think about it. And what's, what's underlying this is really questions like, what is it that I am living for? What is the most important thing in my life? How do I want to spend my time? And what do I think that God wants from me in terms of worship and study and service and devotion? And as a pers- so a personal rule of life like this, is, it's like an intentional path of real concrete steps taken for the purpose of forming our lives around a goal or an idea. We've just sung this morning, I will build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. Well, what? Is it that we're building on the love? It's true that the love of God is a firm foundation. But if this is to be more than just a nice song that we sing on Sundays, then what is it that we're actually going to build? And this is, the, this is where we think this through. Now, as you know, we've got some building work going on, and they've been here since November, and hopefully, well, they tell us they're going to be out of here by the end of May. I don't believe it myself. We'll, we'll see, but, but I've got some faith anyway. Um, but... The point is that before they started building, we spent at least two years kicking around the plans. What is it that we want to do? And consulting with and talking to all different people who use the building and in all kinds of ways and changing the plans and tweaking them and thinking about them and reflecting on them and changing them some more. You don't set out on a big project unless you have a plan. And similarly, you don't, you know, it would be stupid to sort of just invite the builders here on the first day. So just kind of do what you feel. We just leave it to chance. And yet with our faith, if we don't do something like this, and you don't have to do this, and you don't have to do it in this structured way, but if we don't start out with a plan, then we're leaving our relationship with God kind of to chance. Oh, it might happen, it might not. And the question is, is that going to get us where we want to? Another analogy is um, like an athlete with a training schedule. Joe, wrote, Joe put this one up last week. And Did you watch Mo Farah in the London Marathon? Came third. I thought he did amazing, considering this is his first big one. Um, I read the book by this guy, Chris Hoy, the Olympic cyclist. I read a really interesting book about him in his life. He's retired now and he commentates. But in his book, he talked about um, a tra- what, how, his relationship with a training plan and a training schedule. And his coach, and he said, how it works is like this. You have a goal, your next goal. Say it's the European Championships or the World Championships or the Olympics, or we're going to break that record. And, and in the diary, you see that goal coming up. 
you know, a few months away, and you sit there and you think, okay, that's the goal. What do I want to achieve? How am I going to get there? And then he said, and what you do is with your coach, you write a training plan. And the training plan might involve all sorts of different things. It might be a training camp to do altitude things for a week or two. It might be um, time in the gym, sort of working on personal fitness. It might include aspects of diet and health. Um, It might include all sorts of different ways of training. But this is the bit I remember. He said, and then you look at your training plan that you've agreed with your coach. And he said, and it should, and it becomes, these are his words, it becomes your Bible for the next few weeks. And you just stick to the plan because you know that you've made a plan and that's what's going to get you towards the goal. And he said, and that plan should inspire you and motivate you. And if it doesn't, if you look at it and you think, oh, whatever, then you rip it up and you go back to your coach and you start again, you write a new plan. Because that is the only way that you're going to achieve your goal. By making a plan and then sticking to it and setting out on it. It must drive you forward to the next season. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this all sounds great, Nigel, but it's just positive psychology. Is it actually in the Bible? And the answer is yes. So without further ado, we're going to look at the Bible a little bit about um, this. Because God is really into plans and he's really into character growth. And that is what we're after. So the first place we're going to look is in Daniel in the Old Testament. Now, Daniel is really well known because he survived a night in a den of lions. But have you, have, you, have you ever asked yourself why it is that he ended up with the, with the lions in the first place? And the answer is because he was choosing to live a certain way. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he refused to stop his habit, his practice of praying three times a day. In the window facing Jerusalem, his home, homeland. Where he perceived, I suppose, his God was. Okay? He was living out his rule of life. And although they'd made that practice illegal, he decided, well, it's what I need to sustain my life, so I'm going to do it anyway. And that's what got him into trouble, put him in the lion's den. God showed up, it was all okay in the end. The background story to this, and you can read this in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, is that Daniel was a young man taken with a whole bunch of other young men from Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar and his invading armies, captured and taken back to Babylon where he was put to work in the king's court and basically indoctrinated in the Babylonian culture. I mean, this was a young, handsome, intelligent, wise, smart guy, it says in the Bible. Uh, And they educated him in their history, in their maths, in medicine, in their religion, all their literature, all of it coming from a pagan Babylonian standpoint, which Daniel wasn't used to and didn't know because he'd grown up in Jerusalem, in Israel. It was totally alien to the Jewish way of life that he'd grown up with. He learned about myths and astrology and sorcery and magic, all of which had been banned in Israel. They were trying to completely eliminate his, his cultural distinctiveness. They were trying to absorb him into their whole Babylonian worldview. I suppose you could think of it as brainwashing. And yet, somehow, Daniel managed to resist all of this and the enormous power of Babylon. It didn't get to him. He worked for them, yes. He was in there, but it didn't get to him. How did he do that? Well, it wasn't as if he could live a monk's life in a cloistered kind of abbey behind high walls. Daniel had a heavy job, loads of responsibilities, serving the king and working, probably lots of people giving him orders. And as Pete Scazzaro says in his book, 
Daniel had a minimal support system and probably a very long to-do list. Does anybody here sometimes feel like they've got minimal support and a lot to do? And yet, Daniel had a plan. He had a rule of life. Daniel didn't leave his relationship with God to chance. He knew that, maybe you could translate this into our language, that going to church on Sunday and spending 15 minutes being quiet every day, just praying with God, wouldn't, wouldn't be enough. He knew, it was, he knew what it was up against. And so what he did was there were two things that we read about. He renounced certain activities. It says that he resolved not to drink the king's wine and eat the king's food. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, he asked for permission not to do that. And in fact, the story goes on, you can read it, that he, he said, just feed me vegetables. And the king's official said, well, you're going to end up being really weak and pathetic if you do that. And uh, Daniel said, well, give it 10 days and then see. So he did give it 10 days, and it turned out he was more healthy and more strong than all the others. So then the king, the king's steward said, all right, well, you're all just getting vegetables. <laughs> dietitian in there somewhere is getting very happy. Um, so there were certain things that he said he was not going to do, and then there were other things he said he was going to do. And you can read on this side, as I've already mentioned, that he went home, and his plan was that he would play, pray three times a day with his windows open towards Jerusalem. That was how he would connect with God. And he would give thanks. And he continued to do that, just as he had done all through his life. That's the pattern. And despite growing up in this completely hostile environment, Daniel was able to feed himself spiritually and become an extraordinary man of God. And it was all because he had the wisdom to develop his own rule of life, his own plan. He didn't just leave it to chance. He took the business of growing his relationship with God seriously. So that's one example from the Bible. Um, Let's look at another one. I'm going to move to Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, which is a quite well-known passage that Paul writes. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of it. This is Paul writing to the Ephesian church. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure, the fullness of Christ. This is a really well-known passage. And it's mainly well-known because of verse 11, which is where Paul describes these different offices or spiritual gifts of church leadership, sometimes called the five-fold ministries. And, you know, some people around churches get very focused on these particular leadership gifts and how it is that, different leaders express them. Are you a prophet or an evangelist? Um, That stuff's important, and they are important distinctions, but I don't think the passage is really about that. The passage is about the purpose of leadership. And the purpose of the leadership, according to Paul, is to teach the body of Christ, the church, to equip God's people for works of service. The purpose of leadership, whether you're a pastor or a teacher or an apostle or a prophetic person, is to equip the people of God to live the life that God's calling them to live. So that the body of Christ, that's the church, is built up and grows in maturity. So for example, if you are a gifted teacher, the purpose isn't simply for that teacher to, for you to simply dispense wisdom from the platform and enjoy the sound of your own voice and share your ideas as far and wide as possible. It's to use your teaching gift to equip God's people to live out their faith. And help them interpret the Bible's wisdom and grow in maturity and in their relationship with God. 
And Paul takes this a bit further with the next couple of verses. And he actually paints a picture of what immaturity looks like and then what maturity looks like. He says, look, this is where we're trying to get to. You know, he's already said, uh, you know, that our aim is to be, uh, to reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature according to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Everything that Christ has got for you, our aim is to get it, get it all. Do you want everything God's got for you? Do you want everything Jesus has got for you? Or are you happy to leave some of it on the sidelines? Yeah? And so Paul says, that's, and, and what this looks like, he says, is this. Verse 14, he says, Then we will no longer be like infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. He's not saying infants are deceitful. He's saying, when you're young, it's easy to have your ideas swayed. And immaturity in the faith, according to Paul, looks like being uncertain of what we believe and uncertain of who we are and not really knowing the truth about God and therefore easily swayed by different ideas. It also means that we're vulnerable to other people's deceptions or tricks. In this case, Paul is warning these people about other teachers who will come into the church and try and teach them dodgy theology. Those of us who are immature, according to Paul, are lacking the emotional insight that we are able to distinguish between what's good and what's harmful, what's healthy and what's dangerous. And Paul says our aim is to grow beyond this stage. He says, I want you to grow to maturity. That's why I've given you leaders, pastors, teachers, evangelists, etc., etc., to equip God's people for works of service so that we all grow in the faith. What are we aiming for? Instead of that, he says we're aiming for this, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Maybe those verses are familiar to you. According to Paul, maturity looks like the ability to speak the truth in love. Now, if that isn't emotional health, what is? Being able to say what you feel and speak the truth, but do it in a kind and loving way. That's emotional health. Being able to express who we are and what we feel. He also says, Paul says, it's, it's speaking the truth and it's growing to be like Jesus. It's being more and more like him. How do we do that? By taking time with him. And what's the result of that, Paul says, it's that we take our place in the body of Christ. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. So this image of the church as a body, which Paul discusses in more detail in a different book in Corinthians, suggests that every single member of this body is important. As a supporting ligament, he says, keeping things in balance. Now, when I read that, I think of a picture of something that, something that we used to go and play on in the park with our kids. Have you ever seen a climbing frame that looks like that? There's one in Week Park if you live near us. <laughs> um, and I was always struck by these type of climbing frames because they're basically held together by rope. And the whole thing is held in tension. It's not like a 
it's not like metal, which is not going to move. The whole thing moves. It's, I think, part of the fun of it when the kids are climbing. Um, but if one of those joints comes out of place, then the shape of the whole thing is lost, right? And I kind of think, when I read this verse, I kind of think that, that's a, that the body of Christ, the church, is a little bit like that. As each of us invests in our own individual relationship with God, it doesn't just affect us and how we grow through the emotional stresses and strains of life. It actually affects how we relate to one another in community, which affects, in turn, the overall health and strength of the body of Christ, our church. So the stronger we are, the more mature each of us is, the stronger the body of Christ is. The stronger the body of Christ is, the stronger the church is, the more fruitful and effective we can be for the kingdom of God. The better we can share hope and life with those in need and represent Jesus in our communities and uphold those who are just really struggling and in need. And whether you've been coming to this church, Winchester Vineyard, for a short time or a long time, our expectation is that if you're serious about being part of this church, then you're serious about growing in your relationship with God and developing in emotional health and immaturity and consequently in relationships. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I think it needs all of us to want to do that in order to fulfill the vision and the mission and the purpose that we as a community believe God has given us. Is that too challenging? I hope not. You see, we believe God's asked us to impact this whole region and bring Jesus' hope and life to multiple communities and hundreds and thousands of people. And if you've been around here any significant time, I'm assuming that you feel the same because, and that that's what excites you and ignites your passion. And if you've made a decision to make this church your home, then that has implications. You've heard me say this before. If you buy into the vision, buy into the vision. I've usually talk, used that phrase when I'm talking about money. And generosity, as I said, that starts next week. But actually, what I mean is if you buy into the vision, then invest in the vision of the church. And in this case, that means invest in your own life and your own relationship with God. And as each of us does that, creates our own rule of life, then we will grow. As Joe said two or three weeks ago, growing older is inevitable for all of us. But growing up, growing in maturity is a choice that we all have to keep making. When we were kids pastors, Joe said this last week, we used to tell our kids, there are two things that you really, really need to know. And this was our kind of mantra. The first one is, God made you special. You are special to God. The second thing is, we have to choose to follow Jesus every day. Every day. It's not just a case of a one-off deal. Oh, come to God, pray the prayer, you're in, you're done. Cruise now. You have to choose to follow Jesus every day. And lastly, just one more passage from the book of Hebrews, where the writer is in full flow in his main teaching about Jesus, but he just pauses to write this little aside, where again he warns his audience about the dangers of false teachers. There was a lot of this going about in the early church, which is why all these um, letters have been written like this. Um, And he says to them, some of you haven't yet grown to maturity. In fact, he says, in fact, by this time, some of you ought to be teachers but you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. He says you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. 
But solid food, this is the verse I want to focus on. Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Mature meaning something at the end of its life, finished, completed, brought to full, fully grown into what we're supposed to be. Constant use meaning the kind of practice or habit or custom that we teach ourselves. He says you've trained yourself. Solid food is for the mature who by constant practice, by intentional habit, have trained themselves. And the train word is, the Greek is gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium. And it refers to a vigorous daily exercise of either the body or the mind. He says, the mature, by constant use, have trained themselves to discern or judge or distinguish between good and evil, to know what's right and what's wrong. And here, using this training analogy, the writer to the Hebrews is describing the process by which followers of Jesus reach maturity. He's saying, just like an athlete trains vigorously daily in a gym to develop the right habits that will take them towards their goal, so followers of Jesus ought to train their bodies and minds in the habits that will take them towards their goal. And we are people who are growing to maturity in Jesus, aren't we? That means we look different, we stand out from our culture, we live with a purpose, we have something to share with the world. question for today to reflect on is, where are we on that journey? What training plans are we putting in place? This week, Joe, I mentioned to you that Joe went on a, well, Joe mentioned to you she went on a retreat last week, and it's my turn this week. I get a couple of days away just to stop and think and pray and talk to God. And kind of get some of my get some of this thinking for me. I've I've built these things into my diary, roughly once a term, just for two or three days. Just get out of the office, get away from home, and just do have some time because I just know it's hard to relate to do that with it with any meaning in any extended way at home. What are we doing? What can we do? What's the Lord asking us to do? I want to finish with a little quote. If you're into reading, you might be interested in this book. It's a book called Father Joe, The Man Who Saved My Soul. And um, I had to uh, write an essay on uh, the rule of Benedict when I was studying theology. And this is one of the books that was uh, in the reading list. And it looked reasonably contemporary, unlike all the other books I had to read, which were all quite theological and highvolutin. Anyway, this guy is called Tony Hendra. And um, if you're a muso and you've ever seen the film This Is Spinal Tap you'll know that he played a part in that film. He's acted in that. But he's best known as a satirist and a writer. He was British, but mainly worked in the USA uh, around the 70s and 80s. Anyway, this book tells a story about how, as a teenager growing up in the 1950s, he was taken to a monastery to sort out his sinful life. This guy had grown up in a pretty pretty traditional Catholic environment. And arriving at the monastery as a 14-year-old boy, he was expecting quite severe discipline. And actually what he got instead was incredible kindness and love by a wonderful Benedictine monk called Father Joe, Joseph Warrillow. Now the monastery was on the Isle of Wight. It's called Cor Abbey. And this guy, Father Joe, who's not alive anymore, was there for over 60 years as a monk, a Benedictine monk. And the book is about Tony's story about how his life continued over here 
slowly falling apart, marriage, work, family, all of that, um, but how he kept making visits at different periods of life back to Father Joe, who was still on the island, still at the abbey, and still living out the rule of Benedict, praying seven or eight times a day, and just kind of doing the whole peaceful thing. Hendra describes this man as a saint. He says, this guy was a saint. And while the world went through 60 years of turmoil, politics and war and culture shift and rock and roll and all of that, and everything changed, Father Joe remained completely unflappable, unimpressed and unchanged and really just growing more and more in the love of God from spending his time going through his rule of life. And he talks about how Father Joe's faith and understanding of God and the love that he displayed were incredibly influential through Tony's life. How, as he lived through the ups and downs of of everything, his visits literally ended up saving his life. It's a really interesting and inspiring book, and if you're into it, maybe you want to read it. Although we're not all called to live in a monastery on the Isle of Wight, there is something profound and intentional about the way that this man and his fellow brothers and others who do that lived out their lives. Now, I had to write an essay for my theology degree about the rule of Benedict. And there are some aspects of the rule of Benedict that I would challenge a little bit um, theologically. But essentially, it's a really great idea. And I finished my essay with a quote from this book. I said, it was, after all, a lifetime spent following the rule of Benedict that enabled Father Joe to utter the simple but incredible, profound, and life-changing truth. Tony, dear, you will only be able to love when you understand how much you are loved. You'll only be able to love when you understand how much God loves you. There's one more quote I'd like to finish on as we finish this series, which is from 2 Corinthians. That we, with unveiled faces, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The more we look to him, the more we look like him. The more we know how much he loves us, the more we can love others. And that's the essence of what this is all about. And so, why don't we stand together? I... Don't have time to do all of this, but I did bring this book with me, which is some of you have maybe been going through this, which is the sort of accompanying book, and it's the book of the Daily Office. And what I want to do is I just want to have a couple of minutes of silence, if that's okay. I do want the band to come back in a minute, but not just yet. I want to have a couple of minutes of silence, and I just want to ask a question and then read a prayer. And this just comes from one of these Daily Office things. And it's just around everything that we've been talking about. We've already read the Bible together, but why don't we just take a moment just to center before God and just to be still. And in this daily office, it reads some passages from Daniel, which we've already kind of covered. And then there's a little bit of a devotional, which... I've already kind of covered as well about Daniel's plan and his rule of life. But then there's a question to consider that I want to throw out to us. And this is just a question to think about. And the question is this. What is your plan in the midst of your busy day 
for not leaving the nurturing of your interior life with God to chance. I'll read that again. What is your plan in the midst of your busy day for not leaving the nurturing of your interior life with God to chance? Let's take a moment to think about that and then I'll read this prayer. Maybe ask the Holy Spirit to inspire you. Here's the prayer. Lord, I just need to be with you for a long time. I can see that there are lots of things in me that need to change. Please show me one small step I can take today to begin to build a life around you. Lord, help me to develop an effective plan in my life for paying attention to you, whether I am working, resting, studying, or praying. In Jesus' name.